I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Inside Track, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. Today, I'm joined by Dan Leyland. Dan had an interesting introduction to the world of transformation, which he will explain further during today's episode. He describes what he does as helping organisations do the impossible so their people can achieve extraordinary results, enjoy work and feel fulfilled. Let me introduce him now. Hi Dan, uh, great that you can join us today. Um, we're recording this during the, uh, the first week of the effective lockdown in the UK as a result of the coronavirus. So uh, first question is how are you faring? Yeah, not bad. I mean, it's a really unusual time. Uh, I think it's not surprising that as a change professional, I'll give a change answer, that this is a, a period of unprecedented change. Um, I think it's a very difficult time. Uh, sympathies go out to people that are affected and people that might be affected. Uh, really difficult to know what to say. I think if, yeah. if any of us had said a year ago or even a month ago, that we'd be in a situation where people couldn't leave their homes in the UK. I think it would have been hard to wrap our heads around. No, absolutely. absolutely. I think uh, there's quite a lot of potential positives that will come out of it uh, in so much that, you know, that, that just the sheer drive that lots of people have had to do things. So 10 days after uh, making an announcement, we'll have a fully functional hospital um, set up. An emergency hospital, absolutely. That we, you know, we're within five days of announcing a, a new factory. It's going to be um, uh, producing. I was just going to say that I think the leadership shown by the government has been absolutely outstanding, and you can imagine the amount of red tape that they must have had to cut through to fast as they've moved. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely, totally agree. Well, you've, you've had a long career in change and, and program delivery uh, across multiple sectors. So just to start off, can you, can you provide the listeners with a bit of background on your career, just, just to build the context of what we're going to go and talk about? Yeah, absolutely. So I've had a slightly unusual route. A lot of people doing change and transformation work tended to either grow up in IT and start off as developers and business analysts and, and take that kind of route. Uh, quite a few people seem to have come through a military route uh, or a consultancy route. Yeah. Uh, mine was slightly different in that I started a business at university. It took off. wasn't the plan. It was supposed to be a bit of beer money. <laughs> and uh, grew that for a number of years, enjoyed myself, learned a few lessons the hard way, one of which was losing that business, which was really tough. But then uh, a little bit by accident, found there are some real transferable skills between running a business and doing change. Yeah. Uh, so going into an organization now on a discrete basis and helping to tackle problems and opportunities, uh, I've found that you can run those really effectively uh, in a similar way to a startup business. Yes. About knowing what you need to do, surrounding yourself with the right people, making sure that you've got the data to make sure that you you know what's really going on rather than what you might like to think is going on uh, and then having the mechanisms when you need to course correct i agree and, and it's interesting isn't it as, as a small business you you are the uh, when you're setting up you tend to be either you on your own or with a very very small group of people and by by definition you touch every part of that business um, yeah. but as you grow 
uh, and as organizations grow you're getting further and further away and unless you put those structures and systems in place to provide you with the data points then you're you know you, you lose you lose control yeah. and, and, and and that's what you know that's what a lot of organizations that's position a lot of organizations are in when you start going in and doing programs and transformations and change because they've, yeah. they've, they've lost the, the control or they've lost the um, the visibility of, of where, they, where, where, where they need to get to. Absolutely. And um, obviously, I, I know you're a big proponent of this, but you know, we, we all, we're all aware that 70% of change programs fail to deliver uh, their expected sort of outcomes. Why do you think that is? So I think this is an interesting one because when I first started doing this, then uh, I tended to focus on, um, I suppose, combination of big picture and detail, but tended to be based on uh, a little bit having the blinkers on of what is the distinct problem or opportunity here. Over a number of years, you tend to find it's the same fleas, different dog, where an awful lot of organisations, in fact, if I think about it, pretty much every organisation that I've worked in or even heard about has exactly the same problem. Uh, and for me, that's where the, the stats like the 70% of change programmes fail, according to the Harvard Business Review, but a couple of other interesting ones. So according to Forbes, mismanagement of change is the num- number one reason CEOs get fired. Mm-hmm. McKinsey talk about large projects running 45% over budget, 7% over time, and delivering 50%, 56% less, less value than predicted. Yeah. So in my mind, and based on experience, this all comes down to change being poorly understood. And when I say that, what I mean is, in part, what is the specific change? So we talk about the problem or the opportunity. Uh, I think there's a temptation to... Uh, use the word agile or the concept agile and go charging off without having really fully understood something. Uh, But a lot of the time also, it is change as a concept, which just isn't understood. So people will typically tends to be the high performers in an organization, the leaders, the managers, who might one minute be the, the next big thing in finance, you know, they're up and coming as the next CFO. And then they're asked to run or lead a change program. But you wouldn't do that in other contexts. So you wouldn't say to them, would you mind just running the HR team for a bit? And so I think there's a big difference between what I would say is business as usual and business as unusual. And so for me, it is all about defining the problem, opportunity or outcome, and then also making sure that the people that are tasked with running and delivering the change are given a fighting chance. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that they've spent their entire career doing it, but I think that there does have to be a recognition that the skill set and the mindset to run a business and change a business are very, very different. Absolutely. And, and, and it's important to get that support network around those people. So I think it would be interesting to get your view. I think it's important that you've got... Um, one of the senior C-suite people as a sponsor and as a driver for the change and being the figurehead. Um, and, and, and some of those will, might, might, will quite naturally be leading that. But if they haven't got the, um, the support structure around them um, with people uh, like yourself who've, who've been there, done it and been able to demonstrate how to, how to successfully deliver change, 
that they're on a, uh, that's a recipe for disaster? I think it is. I think that even there, though, there's a tremendous variance between how open people are to being able to say, this is what I'm good at, this is what I'm experienced at, and I would really appreciate and value your help yeah. as an external advisor. Uh, and I suppose, again, it plays into that piece about the recognition and understanding of the difference between business as usual and business as unusual. Yeah. You can be a cracking leader or a manager in an organisation running a business as usual function or a part of it, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can just step straight into change. Can you give us a few examples of, of, of uh, organisations, without mentioning names, um, that you've, you've worked in where you've had that sort of challenge, where, where, where a leader has been given the mantle of driving the change initiative, but maybe doesn't have those sort of uh, core skill sets, and, and, and what you've done to help and support and overcome those issues? Yeah, I think, I think more often than not, it's the case, because... I'm a big believer that the the answers lie within an organisation. Uh, you know, me or someone like me can't reasonably go into organisations of different sizes and across sectors and pretend to have all the answers. But what we can have is the questions and the methodology. Of and tap into the people in the organisation and form a virtual team, which we then disband at the end of the change. So when I think back over the years, whether it's working in social care or working in banks, uh, working in legal firms, a lot of the challenges are, are very similar. You've got people that want and need to be involved, uh, but they need to have an understanding of how best they can do that. And uh, part of my role is making sure that we've got the right people in the right seats with the right support. And how have you gone about doing that? What, 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 uh, how do you determine who the right people are and what seats they should should, uh, should should sit in? So I think a big part is, have they got enough time to be able to do uh, the day job as well as the, the change job? And sometimes uh, all or a, a big chunk of their time is ring-fenced, which makes things easier. Sometimes it's not. Uh, so keeping an eye out for are people set up to, to succeed or to fail? Uh, but then also working with them and helping to explain up front, how are we going to do this? And then keeping things as simple as possible. So again, without naming names, but I think back in terms of some organisations where uh, I've gone in in delivery assurance style roles and gone in and, and kicked the tyres a little bit and looked at some of the things, some of the projects and started to ask the silly questions, which sometimes turn out not to be quite so silly after all. Yeah. But things like, you know, big strategic program of work, uh, can I just have a look through the documentation? Uh, and then you see something which might have the name or charter or terms of reference or something along those lines. And you see that it's 70 odd pages long and it's on version nine. Mm. And you, you then go through and say, well, just out of interest, roughly how long did it take to create this? And the answer comes back, oh, weeks and weeks. Okay. And do you think all of the key stakeholders have read and understood it? Well, I don't know. It's on SharePoint for them. And for me, that's an example of how not to do it. Yeah. Because I think that there might be some methodologies which would talk about providing that you, or perhaps be interpreted, that 
if you have XYZ documentation in place, then your project or program will be successful. I think that actually, if you can keep things simple and say, there are certain documents that we'll need because we need to make sure that if someone new comes into a project or a program partway through, for whatever reason, then they can pick, pick up something and very quickly bring themselves up to speed. You need to make sure that everyone has a common understanding of why you're doing something, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and you know, what happens next. But I think you can do a lot of those things on one or two pages. Yeah, I was just going to say, you don't need a 70-page document, do you? No, you don't. And I think that is self-defeating. I mean, I remember working with a guy years ago and something that he said really stuck with me, which is, if you can't explain something on one side of A4, it's because you don't understand it. Yeah, no, I agree. What was aimed for is every project or programme, regardless of spend, it could be a £70 million um, re-platforming, needs to be explainable on one side of A4. Yeah. Now, maybe you have slightly more detailed documentation for different audiences, but something that everyone can go to and say, yeah, that's it, I get it. Yeah, I think some of the, some of the most, uh, most successful programmes I've been involved in in my career, um, we, we've had programme rooms or project rooms, um, and we've, we've mapped it out on the wall. And, and, and our, um, our approach was if the chief exec or the, um, the, the newest member of the team can't walk in and very quickly, within five minutes, understand what we're doing, we've failed. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree and, more. And, 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 that, and, that, and that's a visual representation as well as having, as you say, just having it on one sheet. And it's funny because when you step back and think about it, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. Why would that not be the case? And yet all too often it's not. And that's very much been my approach that keep it simple, have some documents, but have the documents that you need and then have them flow into one another. So for example, you need something, whether it's one document or multiple documents, something that helps people to say, what's the problem or opportunity that we're trying to solve? You need something to be able to say, okay, so once we've solved it, how will we know? You know, what's the outcome? Otherwise, you, you're at it forever. You need something then that says, okay, so how specifically will we do this? Now, in my head, that's a plan. The plan then drives the resource model. The resource model drives the financials. And then you've got the basis, and only then, to be able to look at tracking and reporting. Yeah. So sometimes you see that none of those things are in place, and yet you still have people reporting on risks and issues. And you find yourself thinking, well, how yeah what's you know, what is the risk or the issue against if the scope isn't defined if you haven't understood what you're trying to do if you haven't understood what success is if you haven't understood how your resourcing model works the, the plan the financials you've just got a, a statement of facts rather than something to be able to say and here's the so what absolutely totally agree, totally agree. so so it sounds like um uh, some of the programs that you've been involved in um, are almost got in as in a recovery situation um, where, where organisations maybe have tried to, 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 to set things up. Um, I've probably just touched on a few of them there, but when, when, you've, when you've been brought in in that situation, what are, what are the typical things that you've, been, uh, that you've found uh, that sort of caused it not to be as successful as it could have been? Uh, some really surprising ones. Um, so I have done a mixture of greenfield and brownfield, mm -hmm. uh, but for example, what I tend to do, uh, 
is the first roughly 10 days of any assignment or any piece of work if there's more than one engagement with the clients is something which I call the reality check. And the idea of that is look beyond the perception of what's going on and get to the truth because only by having the, the cold hard facts can you then work out what to do about it. Yeah. Some of the things that have come out of those initial 10 days are things like £40 million programme, which didn't have any documented scope and strategy and had committed funds to contracts based on incorrect information. There was due diligence for an M&A transaction, which hadn't picked up some really significant operational and customer issues. Now, once we did that, we were able to then work out what to do about it. And there was a happy ending to that particular story, which was we managed to uh, get back around the negotiating with the counterparty and save 40%, or in this case, £2 million on the deal. There was a £70 million programme which uh, the previous incumbents had been reporting that everything was on track, but actually they hadn't engaged significant stakeholders, didn't have a credible scope, plan, resource or financial model, and they'd been concealing issues. Uh, And then there was was one where there were 100 or so in-flight projects and programmes inherited by a new leadership team, and an awful lot of the critical success factors were simply missing. Now, with all of these things, or with a lot of these things, there might be the exceptions, it isn't anyone's fault. It is simply that some of the building blocks are not in place, and then put in place, the programme stands a fighting chance of succeeding. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So is your preference to go in in greenfield or brownfield? Or are you you relaxed about that? Relaxed about either because the thing that makes me tick is helping organisations to do what they didn't perhaps think was possible so that people can deliver exceptional results and enjoy their work. Uh, Now, I can do that either in a new startup project or programme context or in a turnaround But what I've tended to find is that the turnaround situations, the stress levels are higher, uh, whereas in the startup situations, there's a good deal more excitement. So I think it is more fun from the outset in the greenfield sites, uh, but both of them are rewarding ultimately. So what's what's the most interesting programme that you've been involved in? Um, Well, now there's a question. There was one relatively recently, which was large-scale change. So organisation that was doing incredibly well, really great organisation, had been um, growing year on year in terms of turnover and profitability, and then had done a deal to buy an organisation that was approximately three times their size, which then catapulted them into the FTSE 100. And what made it fascinating is the team was great. Team is great. And this was change on a grand scale. And so it was tough for lots of people, but being able to go in there and uh, feel like there were lots of opportunities to be able to help different parts of the organisation to just in very simple terms, work out where are we? Where do we want to be instead? And pragmatically, how do we get from A to B? Uh, For me, that is the epitome of a good day's work.
yeah no absolutely interestingly enough been involved in one of those myself and uh, uh, it was always it, it was positioned internally as a merger politically yep. um but it was it was quite clearly a takeover by the smaller organization of the bigger organization uh, and that and that created some cultural issues uh, and, and, and some challenges in itself uh, because it's, you know the the, the larger organizations uh, management team were like well you know we, we, we're three times the size of you who are you to come in and tell us how to do things um i think you you always get the cultural challenges um but i think that when we talk about that another way of describing that might be change resistance and uh, similar kinds of language and for me those are symptomatic of um missed needs or needs not being met so i'm a firm believer that no one comes into work to be awkward or to do a difficult job or to make life tough for people actually they've got needs that they may not necessarily have put into words and explained to anyone uh, but it's because those needs aren't met that they are feeling awkward uh, and different people have different ways of displaying that uh, so i think in my mind culture is just a part of that uh, but under, obviously you, you can have different organizations where people have been used to working uh, with different groups of people perhaps in different countries under different leadership styles and it does take a while to adapt I think, like you say, it's it's understanding those cultural differences, isn't it, and being cognizant of them, yeah. and, and 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 reflecting back in their language and taking them on the journey. And yeah. there, there will naturally be people that you need to leave behind at the station, um, but more, more, more often than not, you can take the people on the, if if you choose to do it in the right way, you can take people on the journey with you. Yeah, agreed. Good. So um, change is constant, as we've spoken about already. So what do you think are the sort of key steps that any sort of transformation should follow or, or, or have in place or you know, key things that you would, you would want to see an organisation having um, if they were going to uh, drive that sort of change mandate forward? Okay. So I think some of it I've, I've mentioned already, um, keep it as simple as possible. Have documents where you need them, but keep them short and punchy in layman's language. You know, there's no point having a clever document that the author understands and is proud of, but no one else can understand. Make sure that things flow uh, so that one document informs another. Uh, I think that it's crucial to be able to bridge between detail and big picture. Uh, so the devil tends to be in the detail, but likewise, the people that are the most influential and powerful in the organization tend to have so many things that are on their plates that you need to be able to distill the detail into the big picture and go even further, in fact, and talk about what is the compound effect of this and all of the other changes that are happening. Um, I think that often you hear talk of change fatigue, uh, slightly controversially. I would say that there's no such thing as change fatigue if change is done well. Mm. I think people can be fatigued by bad change because who wouldn't be? If you're busy and you're doing long days in the office and by virtue of doing long days in the office, you've got less time to do other stuff, such as spend time with the family, then if you've got people that are promising the earth and delivering an awful lot less, 
yeah. and there are bumps in the road that didn't need to be there who wouldn't be wound up by that if you can do change well and you can target pain points and opportunities and you can make life better for people and you can make sure that things are relevant and they understand what's going on then in my experience change fatigue is sometimes an excuse for bad change i think that there's no substitute for relationships and rapport and as you mentioned you know we're in lockdown in the uk and the uk is far from being the only country that has got this kind of measure in place so whilst over the last however many years we've had um, a bit of a technology revolution and the ability to do meetings remotely uh, i think some of those skills are going to be even more important now than ever because organizations at the moment i think are in a state of flux but i think before long uh, and maybe even next week the week after there'll need to be some semblance of okay it may not be business as usual but how close can we get to business as usual so yeah i think keeping things simple i think making sure that you've got an outcome focus making sure that you can bridge between detail and big picture making sure that you involve people and making sure that you're not simply a name on an email um who is asking people to do things without <laughs> without having understood who they are, what's important to them, and why they would want to be involved. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It's, getting it's getting that clarity, isn't it, about what, what they can contribute, what they can offer, um, how involved they need to be up front, um, and getting that whole communication mix right. Yeah. You, you touched on it earlier about, um, you know, going in, certainly going into Brownfield, um, uh, scenarios is, is, is quite stressful. What do you do to alleviate the stress and, and, and rigours of, of, of change personally? Uh, so I've got a young family, so an 11 year old and a two year old, so they keep me busy. Yeah. Um, and I also like long distance running. Uh, so I found that that tends to be quite good for stress relief. Yes maybe stresses you in different ways but they, they seem to counteract one another uh and then choral music uh oh right and a good chunk of my life in church choirs right really enjoy it so yeah slightly unusual but that's me great yeah no, it's, it's interesting um i ask i tend to ask the question quite frequently and i would say 80 percent of people to date have, have, have come back with the running um you know, they just like to get the fresh air out on their own, maybe listen to music as they're going along, but it's just their way of um, extracting themselves from the hustle and bustle of life and yep. just go, going down the tunnel as they're, as they're running and, and they can uh, reflect things in their own mind, got the time to do that. Um, and it seems to be a pretty consistent uh, way that people are de-stressing at the moment. Yeah, I think... I think that rings a bell for me as well. I think your mind can wander and it's quite useful sometimes to let it wander wherever it needs to. Uh, quite a lot of the time I'll come back from a run absolutely buzzing because I've got answers to questions I didn't even realise I had. Yes. If you had to apply one thing and one thing only from all your experience into your next programme, uh, what would that be? Well, for me, it's got to be what I'm calling the reality check, which is this, I mentioned earlier, approximately 10 days. Sometimes it's a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Uh, but a big part of what 
I am going to be doing going forwards is focusing on helping clients to understand what the change is. So right. problem or opportunity, what's the outcome, how do we get from A to B, have we made sure that we've understood this from multiple vantage points, have we identified what some of the key pitfalls might be, because better to know about them and avoid them rather than fall into them. Yeah. Uh, because, like I mentioned, all too often that isn't done up front for whatever reason, probably enthusiasm, probably not necessarily having the right skills and mindset mix in the team from the outset, but it always creates problems down the line. That is an enormous opportunity, and that's where I'm going to be spending my time. Almost stepping back and, and, and reflecting, is the path that we're going down the right path? Is the approach that we're taking to get there the right approach? And giving them time to consider that, and, and as you say, bringing the right people into that discussion. Yeah, completely. Because it's really easy, especially in a stressful environment, typically, uh, change a lot of the time gets kicked off because something is broken or could be better. There's a frustration about an opportunity that seems somehow to be slightly out of reach. Uh, and so there's, there's always some driver for it. And in that context, it's ever so easy to jump into solution mode and say, right, what we need is, and the this often tends to be system or process. Yeah. You step back and say, okay, that may be true, but let's just humor ourselves for a second and go through a process for a couple of weeks where it will pay for itself so many times over to make sure that we've really understood this. Let's walk before we run. Yeah. And how do you find organisations uh, reflect on that? Do they, are they resist, uh, resistant initially? At an organisational level, no. At an individual level, always some people. Yeah. Because the organisation, by the time that myself and others have been drafted in, has already typically done some work, especially obviously in the recovery situations. Of course. Uh, and there are some bruised egos and there are some some reasons, good reasons, why a particular path has been taken. And so someone coming in and saying what they perceive or might perceive to be, hang on a second, let's rewind back all the way to the beginning. If that happened to me, I think it would be frustrating. So I can completely get it. Uh, but no, at an organisational level, I found that it's not a problem but there are always a few people that need to be helped to understand what the merits are. Well, uh, that's great. Thank you very much. I think you know, half an hour has flown by and uh, been very, very useful um, and very good insights into, into the approach that you take. Um, we occasionally get questions coming through um, after, after these are published. Would you be happy if I collate them, share them with you and, and, um, and feed them into you to, to give answers and some further yeah. guidance? More than happy, and um, I know that we're in unusual times, so one of the things that I know seems to be a little bit of a, a theme on LinkedIn at the moment, and I, whenever anyone said, would you be interested, my answer has always been yes, is at this particular point in time, more than happy to do pro bono right. stuff. Uh, so if anyone is struggling and thinking, I don't know which way is up, or just wants to bounce something of someone and likes the approach that they've heard in this podcast, then you know, strange times call for unusual measures and more than happy to help. That's great. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dan. And um, 
look forward to, uh, to, to speaking to you and hearing from you soon. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Tony. Cheers, Dan. Thank you. Let me thank Dan once again. What a great session. And I'm hoping that you will have picked up a few nuggets that you can take away and apply to your future programmes. As Dan said at the end, these are certainly unusual times. However, they do provide an opportunity for you to step back and reflect on things, adapt and adopt new approaches, and ensure that what you are looking to achieve is still relevant. We are constantly on the lookout for transformation leaders to get involved in these podcasts. So if you are interested or would like to suggest someone, please do get in touch. Also, please let me know if you would like me to focus on a specific area in future episodes. Until next time, 